1: And welcome to Western Civ, episode 213, Blood, Gold, and Glory. Last time we introduced Francis I, the King of France. Francis, through sheer luck and over seemingly insurmountable improbability, became the King of France upon the death of Louis XII on January first, 1515. Like Henry VIII, his immediate goal is to seek military glory on the field of battle. Like Henry, Francis turns to a traditional French proving ground, Milan. Like Louis XII and Charles VIII before him, Francis made a play for the wealthy city of Milan, and unlike Louis XII, he actually gets it. After the Battle of Margiano, Francis finally defeats the Swiss pikemen and wins what will prove to be the most important battle of his reign. Too bad for him. It all happened less than 12 months after he took the throne, and he has decades of that reign to go. Henry VIII is going to prove to be one of Francis's rivals, as we know. But there's another man who I've danced around here for at least eight episodes at this point. Charles of Ghent. Charles of Habsburg. The future Charles, King of Spain. Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Charles is a fascinating character in our story. And one of the most important historical figures in all of early modern Europe. Technically... At the height of his power, he's going to command the loyalty of Naples all the way to Flanders, Germany to Chile. His dominions make the Roman Empire look punny by comparison. Although, a lot of those are just lines on a map. As we'll see, Charles is not the all-powerful, all-conquering figure we might expect. Sure, on paper, his domains look great. But in reality, he rules a patchwork empire of varying degrees of allegiance and controls a gold mine in the Americas, but Europe doesn't really know that yet. Still, he's massively important. And so today we bring Charles onto our board. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about
0: mission statements, but a shared mission?
1: On February the 24th, 1500, Charles was the son of Philip I, the handsome king of Castile, and Juana the Mad. His paternal grandparents were Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I and Mary, Duchess of Burgundy. Of course, his maternal grandparents were none other than Isabella and Ferdinand, the Roman Catholic king and queen of Spain. After his father's death in 1506, remember, he died in Spain pressing his own claim to Aragon just after being marooned in England, Charles was raised by his paternal aunt, Margaret of Austria, regent of the Netherlands. In 1515, Charles came of age as Duke of Burgundy and assumed rule over the Netherlands. But, as we know his scope of activities would quickly widen. On January the 23rd, 1516, Ferdinand died. Isabella has been dead for years at this point. As a result, the problem of succession in Spain became acute because by the terms of Ferdinand's will, Charles was to govern in Aragon and Castile, together with his mother, who was considered to be insane. Furthermore, the will provided that Francisco, Cardinal Jiménez de Sinesros, who was the Archbishop of Toledo and one of Ferdinand and Isabella's most influential advisors, he was kind of famously anti-Columbus, that he should direct the administration in Castile. So we have this will that kind of sets up this divided rule situation. And those, I think, as we all know, at this point in this podcast, those don't usually work out. But we also need to remember that Ferdinand had enemies, enemies in Spain, and plenty of them. Ferdinand had gotten a little paranoid in his final years. And his efforts to sort of keep... Juana locked up and rule through her, hadn't gotten him a lot of friends. So opponents of Ferdinand fled to Brussels and succeeded in having the will set aside. And so what happens instead is the Archbishop of Toledo just gets totally cut out of the picture. And instead, on March the 14th, 1516, Charles gets proclaimed king, he's in Brussels still, as Charles I of Aragon and Castile. No ruling jointly with his mother. In September 1517 he arrived in Spain. We have to remember that he is Charles the First, King of uh, what I'll just call United Spain from this point forward, but he didn't speak any Castilian. He barely understood any Spanish customs whatsoever. What he tried to do when he got there was put in place a government that was really little better than foreign rule. He used Flemish advisors and Burgundians to try to just rubber stamp his iron authority over a kingdom he didn't understand. Now, And I'm going to be saying this word a lot now in these episodes. Meanwhile, in England and France, as we know, events proceeded apace. After his victory at Margiano, Francis spent the balance of 1515 in Italy. His time in Italy changed Francis. This was his first look at the Renaissance in person. Francis was quick to realize that he could enhance his own prestige if he worked to cultivate the great scholars, artists, and thinkers of the day. Francis's reign corresponds with the beginning of the Renaissance in France. Thus, while Marguerite might have been the superior scholar, Francis was no fool. He always realized one of the keys to cultivating the Renaissance in France was having good relations with other European leaders. And in 1516, one of the most important men that he had to be on good terms with was Pope Leo X. After two extremely talented and ambitious popes, plus a guy who ruled for about 30 days, I'm talking of course about Alexander VI and Julius II, Leo The Medici Pope ascended St. Peter's throne with an eye to restoring a peaceful balance of power in Italy and throughout Europe. He recognized that the papacy depended on the crowned heads of Europe for its own existence. If European monarchs needed the Pope in order to confer legitimacy, then Leo had a role to play. If not, well, well, then the papacy would continue to be relegated to third-party status, and, of course, I should mention, in 1516, no one was aware of the Brewing Reformation. After Margiano, Francis realized that his relations with the Swiss were tenuous at best. Many a Swiss mercenary had buried a compatriot or even family member the fields of Margiano, so their continued support was anything but guaranteed. Henry VIII, after dealing with that problem of Princess Mary, and who was still viciously jealous of Francis's military success, remained a more likely antagonist than ally at this point despite recent accords. Henry had one famous exchange with a Venetian ambassador that follows in 1515. "'Talk with me a while,' Henry said. "'The King of France, is he as tall as I am?' The Venetian replied, "'There is but little difference.' "'Is as stout?' Henry asked. Uh, "'No,' the Venetian answered. Uh, "'What sort of legs has he?' Henry asked. Spare your majesty, Henry beamed, and pointed to his calf, proclaiming, Look here, I have also a good calf to my leg. Henry was so jealous of Francis the French king that he even sought bodybuilder style to compare the size of his calves with Francis. But for all his jealousy, Henry enjoyed a genuine rapport with Francis, as we're going to see. The two men were much alike, quote, not only in personage, but also in wisdom, delighted both in hunting and hawking and building, in apparel and in jewels. Speaking of jewels, in May 1515, Mary Tudor and Suffolk returned to England and were warmly received by the king. No doubt the fact that Mary had pilfered and brought home several beautiful and expensive French jewels, helped smooth things over. Suffolk and princess widow Mary were wed on May the 13th, 1515, confirming their previous French wedding. Wolsey, always instrumental, was instrumental again in calming Henry down before the couple returned. This was a smart move on his part, because it ingratiated Suffolk to him and reduced Suffolk's status to more of a grateful client. Suffolk, upon his return, spent most of his time away from court, dealing with royal affairs in East Anglia, which suited Cardinal Wolsey just fine. Back on the continent, Francis was trying to decide what to do about Naples. For centuries, the papacy had exercised complete, if at times limited, Suzerainty over Naples. The decision as to who was going to rule Naples after the death of Louis XII and the eventual death of Ferdinand of Spain would come down to Pope Leo. Both men understood this reality, and both wanted to secure significant concessions from the other before the issue of Naples would be decided. The papacy and France agreed to an initial treaty in late 1515. In said treaty, Francis agreed to concede the duchy of Nemours in north-central France, along with a royal pension to Leo's brother, Giuliano. In return, Leo awarded Francis Parma and Pienza. Both sides declared themselves pleased with this initial agreement, but two main issues remained. One was, obviously, Naples. The other was the Pragmatic Sanction of Bourges, which had been in place since 1438. This is the agreement that gave the French king the authority to dole out most high ecclesiastical offices in France, which, in theory, the Pope had to confirm. Pope Leo was acutely aware of the papacy's waning influence in the territorial affairs of Europe, and he desperately wanted to reverse that trend. Naples and the pragmatic sanction were two ways Leo thought he could make that come true. So the two sides agreed to meet again in Bologna within the papal states in December 1515. The meeting got off to a good start right away. Both men genuinely seemed to enjoy each other's company, and Francis in particular loved being around the worldly and cultured Pope. Due in part to the warmth of their relationship, the two men reached an agreement on December 14th. The pragmatic sanction was revoked and replaced with the Concordat of Bologna that drastically reduced the French king's influence over ecclesiastical appointments. Francis assented not only to this, but also to a proposed crusade against the Ottomans. Said crusade would be paid for with a tenth tax on the French clergy, so Francis didn't need to raise any funds. The issue of Naples was more nuanced. Leo hinted that he, quote, might give Naples to Francis upon Ferdinand's death, which is short in coming here, but he didn't commit himself to any specific action. Francis agreed to all of this, including granting his support to Giuliano de' Medici. All in all, objectively, Leo certainly got the better end of the bargain. All Francis got was the hope that he might someday get Naples. Still, Francis left Bologna very pleased with himself. He returned to Milan to survey his new possessions and exercise a bit of clemency. Francis now released from jail many of the antagonists he had locked up after Marciano. A relieved population breathed a collective sigh of relief realizing there would be no future purges. Francis then placed one of his best commanders, Charles de Bourbon, in charge of Milan and prepared to go home to see his mother and sister. Louise and Marguerite were happy to see the victorious Francis, whom they met in Lyon in late January 1516. Claudet was there too, and her reunion with Francis resulted in another pregnancy and the birth of another daughter, Charlotte, on October the 23rd, 1516. Francis and his court would tour the south of France for the balance of the spring and summer of 1516, before returning to Paris in October. State business had effectively ground to a halt in his absence, so many were looking forward to his return. Francis had not been merely hunting and idle. Between January and October, however, and no, I mean, there had been a lot of hunting, don't get me wrong. On January the 23rd, as I said before, Ferdinand of Aragon died. His grandson, the aforementioned Archduke Charles, was nominated in Ferdinand's will to be his heir. Now, this interested Francis not only because if Charles inherited Aragon, then he would continue to rule United Spain, making him a formidable power to be reckoned with. But for our purposes right now, moreover, Charles was also interested in the fact that Ferdinand has nominated Charles to succeed him as the King of Naples, a title that Francis believed belonged to him and that he desperately wanted, as we know. Francis believed he had a solution to this problem, Charles was the nominated heir of the dead king, but Francis thought he derived a better claim to Naples through Louis XII, who had ceded the kingdom of Naples to his niece. However, this ceding was contingent upon said niece having children, which she did not. So as the closest male heir, Francis believed that he, not the 16-year-old Charles, was the rightful ruler of Naples. This was a very delicate issue. Neither Francis nor Charles wanted war with the other at this point. Charles was on his way to Spain to deal with a rebellion. Essentially, Castile and Aragon wanted to return to a self-rule scenario, which Charles absolutely did not support. For his part, Francis didn't want to appear bullish or he risked alienating not only Charles, but, likely Pope Leo as well. So on August the 13th, 1516, the two monarchs agreed to a treaty at Noyon. It was agreed that the infant girl Charlotte, would be betrothed to Charles, and that Naples would be a part of her dowry. Hence, Francis would get to hold on to Naples for now until Charlotte came of age and could be properly married. In addition, Charles agreed to pay an annual tribute of 100,000 ecus in respect of Naples, which more or less implicitly meant Charles was conceding Francis's claim. Francis was very pleased with this result, and, on its surface at least, it seemed like the deal was in his favor. He followed up on this diplomatic win with another, the Treaty of, quote, perpetual peace with the Swiss cantons. In exchange for an annual pension of 1 million in general, plus 2,000 annually to each canton, the Swiss agreed that they would not support France's enemies in France or in northern Italy. Francis would be allowed to levy any troops he wished, provided that they were not called upon to fight against the Emperor. Maximilian, still alive and said Emperor, had no issue with this. He saw that Francis was a rising star and he had no intention, like Charles at this point, of fighting him. On March 11, 1517, he, along with Francis and Charles, signed the Treaty of Cambrai. In theory, it was a kind of mutual defense pact against the Ottomans. In reality, the goal of the treaty was to divide up Italy, mostly at the expense of the Venetians. It's hard to say how seriously Francis, or anyone, took this treaty, especially given that he renewed an alliance with Venice the following year. Francis had every reason to feel good in 1517. His main rivals, Maximilian and Charles, were mollified. Henry VIII privately seethed, but Francis was confident that Wolsey would keep England on the sidelines. France now controlled Milan and Genoa, and had every expectation of governing Naples for the foreseeable future. What Francis did not understand, however, was that Charles was not a boy to be toyed with. Indeed, if Francis made any error in his first several years on the throne, it was underestimating Charles.
0: according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Meanwhile, in England, Henry VIII had not been sitting idle. In the summer of 1515, the king took his progress westwards, where he was joined by the man many believed to be the actual king of England. In the sixth year of Henry's reign, Thomas Wolsey, who, just that month, had become Cardinal Wolsey, thanks to Leo X. Wolsey was a cardinal right out of Leo's own mold. He aspired to a lifestyle rivaling the king himself. In the spring of 1515, Wolsey began construction on the most fabulous palace in all of England, the former centre of the Knights of the Hospital at Hampton Court. Wolsey started by demolishing the entire existing structure, save the clock above the clock court, which still bears the date 1479. Hampton Court was ready for occupation by 1517, and finally completed in 1525. Wolsey spared no expense making Hampton Court the most spectacular residency in all of England. The outer chambers alone were adorned with priceless tapestries and 60 rich carpets, a gift of the Venetian Senate. Wolsey's palace was indicative of his rising stature. Archbishop Warham, who had several times clashed with Wolsey, was now finding it difficult to do his job as Lord Chancellor and Primate of England. So on December 22nd, 1515, Warham retired. Two days later, Henry appointed Wolsey to his old post. He was now, by anyone's estimate, the most powerful man in England second to the king. Maybe. In 1515, one envoy is reported to have said as follows. This cardinal is king. Nor does His Majesty depart in the least from the opinion in the Council of His Lordship. Different court factions quickly found themselves effectively neutered. Their bitterness was matched only by Wolsey's lavish lifestyle. His ecclesiastical revenues, plus his fees as the Lord Chancellor, brought in a massive 35,000 pounds per year, which is over 10 million. Pounds per year in today's money. Most considered his lifestyle unbecoming for a member of the church. Though, remember, most of the periods during this time didn't take any vows of poverty or certainly didn't take them very seriously. And there is no evidence that the only person who mattered, King Henry, took any issue with the way Wolsey decided to live. It's important to point out that while Henry had no interest at all in the administrative process of the English government, he didn't just hand over the keys like Emperor Tiberius had in Rome at the end of his life. Everything Wolsey did was, quote, by authority. And if Henry disagreed with his key counselor, then Henry did as he wanted. Except on several occasions, during the majority of the year... Wolsey, the king, rarely saw one another. He typically remained in London while Henry took his summer progresses. They remained in contact via daily dispatches and through messengers. Now, a lot of people at court disliked Cardinal Wolsey, mainly because he was not nobility. And he gets a bad reputation in a lot of history books as well as popular culture, for what's going to happen later. But it's important to remember that Cardinal Wolsey was both beloved by Henry and was also fantastic at his job. He was a really, that's underlined, hard worker. He rose each day at 4 a.m. and often worked at his desk alone for 12 hours, without stopping to eat or relieve himself. Henry and Wolsey got along really well together. In 1518, Cardinal Wolsey wrote to Henry, Your realm, our lord be thanked, was never in such peace and tranquility. Wolsey might thank God, but Henry knew full well who he had to thank for the peace the realm enjoyed. Henry spent the Christmas of 1515 at Eltham Palace, one of the most frequented royal residencies since 1305. Henry proved no exception, and Eltham was one of his most frequently used great houses during the first half of his reign. The court was at Greenwich, when on February 18, 1516, Queen Catherine finally gave birth to a healthy baby. But it was a girl, and not the hoped-for boy. Still, all our sources report that Henry was positively delighted with his first child. When she was three days old, the girl was christened Mary. Henry enjoyed showing off his daughter as, I do mine, assuring ambassadors that she never cried. Mine does. She was the, quote, pearl of the world. Mary had inherited many Tudor traits, including her parents' intellectual and musical gifts. Hot on Mary's heels, Suffolk's wife, also Mary, gave birth to a son on March eleventh, 1516, named Henry in the king's honor. But it was another sister who soon stole the show. Margaret, Henry's older sister, was married off to King James IV of Scotland, the one who had been killed during the Battle of Floddenmoor. Margaret had remarried Archibald Douglas in 1514, but the Scottish Parliament wasn't having it and seized control of Margaret's son and the heir to the Scottish throne. Then they drove Margaret out of Scotland entirely, and in May of 1516, she arrived at Tottenham with her daughter Margaret Douglas, or little Margaret as she's called, Henry was quite taken with little Margaret and arranged for her to be brought up at court alongside Princess Mary. That same May, Richard Fox finally retired as the Lord Privy Seal. He had done more than anyone else to secure Henry's ascension, and he'd had enough. He founded Corpus Christi College at Oxford and spent his retirement devoted to his religion. While we will hear about him as we talk more in depth in coming episodes about the English Reformation, he will die in 1528. Now meanwhile, Wolsey suddenly found his influence tempered, really for the first time, and by an unexpected source, Thomas More. More was unlike most courtiers at the time, in that he understood and despised the superficiality of court, and disdained the trappings of wealth and power. Sure, Moore got along fine with Wolsey, though he may not have fully approved of him, but the contrast between the two men could not have been greater. In 1516, Moore's classic Utopia was published. It was a scathing critique of the political systems of Europe and the vicious machinations of monarchs and courtiers. But his eloquence won the work international acclaim. Already working as an unofficial secretary to Henry in 1517, Moore quickly found himself promoted to the Privy Council. After a joust on July 5, 1516, Henry set out on his summer progress. Henry would now only joust with Suffolk, a.k.a. Charles Brandon, and a few others because he believed, probably correctly, that other courtiers were deliberately taking it easy on him. Regardless and outside of jousting, Henry's summer progress went well as he followed events in Spain after the death of Ferdinand of Aragon. He kept Christmas that year with his usual lavishness at Greenwich, It had now been nearly a year since Mary's birth, and still no hoped-for son. Catherine was older than Henry and had grown stout, according to the sources. She no longer enthusiastically participated in court revels, and retired early, though she never shirked her duties on state occasions. Clearly, she and Henry were growing a bit apart. That May, 1516, Henry went with his sister Margaret and her daughter to the Scottish border. After the Scottish Parliament had agreed to allow Margaret back. It would prove to be the last time that Henry ever saw his sister. The spring of 1517 witnessed a terrible outbreak of the sweating sickness in England. There were no cases after 1551, so it's difficult today to even know exactly what the sweating sickness was. It's worth mentioning that cyclical outbreaks of plague, normally bubonic, were still common in England, especially in London. The usual victims were the poor, who could not escape the outbreak, but certainly some wealthier people died as well. For example, if we go back to 1513, over 400 people per day died that summer in London. And that was just during one outbreak. Henry was absolutely terrified of any sickness. Today, we would probably call him a germaphobe. Back then, he was, quote, the most timid person in such matters, sickness, you could deal with. Needless to say, he didn't allow anyone who had been in contact with any of infected person to enter his court. That spring, Henry took the court to Richmond, as Henry was now turning his attention more and more to continental affairs. The previous spring, Charles I had succeeded Ferdinand as king of a united Spain. Henry's goal, at least his stated goal, was to maintain a balance of power in Europe between himself, Charles, Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, and of course Francis. In early July 1517, he met with a deputation from the Pope, attempting to arrange an alliance between England, the papacy, and now Charles, against France. When the papal ambassadors left England, he gave them gifts of horses and clothing, indicating their visit probably went well. But by August, plague had crept too near Richmond for comfort, so Henry fled to Windsor. By that month, he was also writing to Erasmus, Multitudes are dying around us. Almost everyone in Oxford, Cambridge, or London has been ill lately. Back in London, there were major civil distresses as a result of Henry and Wolsey's absence. The cardinal was just as fearful of plague, or just as wise, whichever way you want to look at it. Henry became more devout in his devotions during this time, assuming the plague was sent as a punishment from God. Throughout his reign, he engaged in any and all manner of quackery to combat the illnesses his generation could not understand. Silly potions made from ivory-crushed pearls, marshmallows, and even, allegedly, dragon's blood. We have no idea whether he came up with these weird concoctions or merely purchased them. We do know he used a lot of them. The king had six physicians, the best that could be found in the 16th century, which isn't saying much. By December, there were fewer cases of the sweat, but Henry still kept a quiet private Christmas just to be sure. Wolsey, at the same time. Kept Christmas at Richmond well supplied with oranges, thought to be a cure for the plague. For much of 1518, the king remained on his travels. He kept in touch with Wolsey from time to time by special messengers who took information back and forth between the king and his key minister at regular intervals of around seven hours. By Easter, Henry had begun to relax. The news about the plague was good, or at least not bad, and he was willing to spend the holiday with Suffolk and his wife, also Henry's sister. Still, Wolsey cautioned Henry to be careful, as there were rumors abroad of plots against Henry's person. By late spring, Henry was all for returning to London, but Catherine cautioned against it, so they went to Oxford instead. By August, news of the plague had all but abated. Moreover, Catherine was once again pregnant. With hopes of a male heir revived, and with the plague receding, Henry decided that the court should move once more to London. In May 1518, Henry granted Wolsey unprecedented control over the English Church. He no longer had to consult the Archbishop of Canterbury, before initiating major changes to English doctrine. Wolsey had always dreamed of becoming Pope. Now, for the first time, it seemed like that might actually happen. Quickly, Wolsey was becoming one of the most important men in Christendom, and he wanted to expand his power and reputation by becoming the true arbitrator of Europe. In 1518, Wolsey, on Henry's behalf, negotiated the treaty of, quote, universal and perpetual peace, which, in hindsight, should have been meant ironically, but it was meant to confer peace on the lands between England, France, and the papacy. The goal was to reel in Charles I of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, and then... After they were brought down to size, the vision of a European Union, little you, might finally be realized for the first days since Caesar Augustus. As an aside, if you want more of Caesar Augustus, check out a free trial of the subscription feed in the show notes. To cement the treaty, Princess Mary—and I will never again refer to Suffolk's wife as Princess Mary— From this point forward, to avoid any confusion, Princess Mary refers only to the issue of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, and the one who's going to become Queen Mary eventually. But to cement the treaty, it was agreed that Princess Mary would wed Francis I's future heir. Wolsey himself put together the festivities to showcase the treaty, spending nearly £10,000 around $3 million in today's money, on feasts and games in London. The Treaty of London, as it was called, was signed on October third, 1518. Afterward, Wolsey celebrated High Mass, and as an aside, this is probably Wolsey's high-water mark. Two days later, Princess Mary was formally betrothed to the Dauphin. The festivities continued until 2 a.m., but... Catherine, heavily pregnant, retired early. The French, according to the reports, were extremely impressed with the celebration. Henry's hopes of a son ended once more in disappointment. In November 1518, Catherine bore a daughter who died before she could be christened. Henry was, of course, crestfallen. While all this was going on, Wolsey attempted a purge of the Privy Council. While only half successful, Wolsey was able to get four new additions, who could be relied upon to do his bidding. But the big news came two months later. Maximilian was dead. That meant there was going to be a new Holy Roman Emperor. And really, for the first time, Henry thought an English king might have a real shot at winning the election. He didn't, but Woolsey wasn't that much of a fool to tell him so. And that brings us to the final stage of today's episode, the critical imperial election of 1519. On June 28, 1519, Hernan Cortes and his men stood marveling at the wealth of gold and silver they had found in the New World. Charles, meanwhile, stood in Aachen, where the electors unanimously chose him as the next Holy Roman Emperor, replacing the dead Maximilian. A minister explained, Sire, God has raised you above all the Christian kings and princes, and made you the greatest emperor and king since Charlemagne. He has set you on the path to bring the whole world under a single shepherd. Hyperbole? Sure. But the sentiment was very real. Charles was stepping into a Europe that many people believed badly needed unity. Martin Luther had ignited a religious controversy that might just tear Christendom asunder. The Ottomans were pounding at the gates of Vienna. England and France stood at a perpetual war footing. Sadly, as we're going to see, the Habsburg Empire that Charles would create did not lead to peace. Instead, from his ascension to the Holy Roman Throne in 1519 until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, the Habsburg lands would engage with their neighbors in a nearly constant war or at least Quasi war. Oh, and that gold from the New World? Well, Charles needed it, like now. The great Fugger banking house boasted that it had bought the Holy Roman election for Charles to the tune of some 543,000 of the 850,000 florins Charles used to bribe the electors. Cortes and his money arrived just in time. Certainly, Charles had the inside track to the imperial throne. Though Francis I and Henry VIII would also throw their names into that hat, Francis much more. Just before he died in January 1519, Maximilian I made it clear he wanted his grandson Charles to succeed him. But the Holy Roman Empire... Was still a major entity in Europe in 1519, with domains stretching from Germany to the Low Countries, Burgundy, Savoy, and a pretty decent chunk of northern Italy. It should come as no surprise that the crowned heads of Europe and the electors largely ignored Maximilian's efforts to will the crown to Charles. Before his corpse was even cold, Men were lining up to jockey for the crown. And one of those men was Francis I. The French king's motives for wanting to become the Holy Roman Emperor were twofold. First, he wanted to strengthen his own position. Second, he wanted to thwart Charles. If Charles became emperor, then the balance of power in Europe would fundamentally shift. This was the age of the birth of the nation state. Europe was no longer dominated by coalitions of patchwork feudal kingdoms. Rather, several large proto-nation states like England, France, and Spain were so much more powerful that they could now simply shove the other remaining principalities aside. Francis could deal with Charles if he was just Charles I of Spain. But if Charles combined the power of Spain... The wealth of the New World, and the nominal authority of the German princes, then he would easily become the most powerful man in Europe. Francis was far from subtle as to his imperial ambitions. He confided to Sir Thomas Boleyn, while literally leaning out a window to avoid eavesdroppers, that, quote, he would have the empire if it cost him three million pounds, and that three years after his election, he would be in Constantinople or his grave. Francis's problem was that there was no precedent at all for a non-German emperor. The fact of the matter was that it was long imperial policy for the electors to nominate a Habsburg to fill any vacancy. And Charles was a Habsburg. Yet there were reasons for Francis to be at least a little optimistic. Charles was then only 18 years old. No one knew who he was or how he might rule. Moreover, just like Francis, there were men within the empire who felt a bit queasy at the idea of one man commanding that much power in Europe. Once elected, they feared that they might not be able to curtail Charles' ambitions. Plus, there was the outside argument that his mother, Juana of Castile, was rumored to be mentally ill. She almost certainly wasn't, but rumors matter. So people wondered if Charles might head down the same path. The first ballot produced no victor, which actually encouraged everyone to join in on the contest. This is when Henry VIII starts putting out feelers. The English king sent his diplomats in May of 1519. But when they told him that no one was going to get the title without an absolutely massive expenditure, he quietly withdrew his name. This proved to be the first real, I'll say, quasi-election in Holy Roman history. Technically, only the electors get to vote. But for the first time, volumes flew off the printing presses of the empire in an effort to sway local opinion. Electors, the rash now went probably would not go against the expressed desires of their nobility. And so, if someone could shift popular opinion toward Francis or Charles, then that might prove decisive. The electors met on June 8th, 1519 in Frankfurt. Despite Francis's almost Herculean efforts, it proved to be a foregone conclusion when, on June the 28th, the electors announced that Charles I of Spain was now Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. This decision affirmed the essential German nature of the position and continued the Habsburg monopoly over the post until the Holy Roman Empire's final dissolution. Furthermore, it meant that Charles, not Francis, was now the most powerful man in Europe, it had cost him dearly, 850,000 crowns, as I said, but he was now supreme. It was the first serious setback Francis had faced. For his part, Henry took the news well. According to witnesses, he heard the announcement of Charles's election, quote, lovingly. And when someone told him how much money Charles had spent on the imperial crown, he was quote, right glad that he had not obtained the same. Realistically, I doubt Henry ever really believed that he had a shot at obtaining the imperial crown. There had not been an emperor who was not tied to the German royal houses since, I suppose, Charlemagne started it. But Europe had changed a lot since 800 CE. As Charles negotiated for the imperial crown, he had to deal with issues in the New World more often than he would have liked Ferdinand and Isabella might have funded Columbus's voyage, but Charles of Spain was really the first European monarch who had to consistently wrestle with issues related to the New World. He would be the first, but certainly not the last. Throughout 1519, Charles had been dealing with two different proposals for the settlement of the New World, brought by two very different men. Gonzalo Fernandez... De Ovedo y Valdes, and Bartolomé de las Casas. Today, the most famous of the two, by far, is Las Casas. He's best known for his exaggerated but still terrifying description of the atrocities visited upon the natives of the New World by the colonizing Spanish in a work called Brief Account of the Destruction of the Indies. Las Casas, who had sailed with Columbus, we believe on the second voyage, had witnessed these atrocities firsthand. Back in 1511, Las Casas listened to a heart-wrenching sermon preached on Hispaniola by a Dominican friar. The present economic system used by the Spanish in Hispaniola was called the Ecomienda system. It required local natives to provide a specific amount of gold or silver, sometimes other items, as tribute every year. If they failed in their obligations, they could be imprisoned, lose a hand or foot, or be executed. The priest bellowed out to all those who would listen. I am the voice of Christ in this desert. This voice tells you that you will now live and die in a state of mortal sin. By what law do you hold these natives in such horrible and inhumane slavery? By what authority Have you waged such detestable war against people who live peacefully and quietly? Why do you murder them in order to acquire ever more gold? Be sure, like the Moors and the Turks who are without faith of Jesus Christ, you can never save your souls. Not many people listened, but certainly Las Casas did. In the following months, Las Casas renounced his involvement in the encomienda system. He determined instead that he would bring Christianity to the Americas by peacefully preaching to the natives, at the time a wholly novel concept. In 1519, Las Casas brought his complaints to Charles, arguing that he could offer a Christian alternative to what was presently being sold to the natives, and to the Spanish, as the only way of doing business in the Americas. Different Spanish officials had heard these complaints before. They sought to fix the problem by just tinkering with the edges. No, said Las Casas. This was a huge issue at the root of the Ecomonienda system. The entire system had to go. Quote, Those people, mighty lord, who fill the whole of that new world with life are highly capable of accepting Christianity and virtuous ways and a reasoned understanding of doctrine. End quote. Las Casas was suggesting an alternative model of colonization that would set the Native Americans at liberty under the gentle leadership of a salaried, and that was important. Las Casas realized making a person's salary dependent on the output of a colony was a recipe for disaster. And through these governors, the natives could be organized into towns. The natives would then accept the true faith, become farmers, maybe miners. And pay the usual fifth tax owed to the crown. Idealistic? Sure. But frankly, if you put greed and capitalism aside, there's no reason that this could not have worked. Well, other than the fact that European diseases were cutting through the native populations like a hot knife through butter. But well, I can't fix everything, and neither could Las Casas. In the end, Las Casas's dream remained that, just a dream. Over Oviedo's opposition, Las Casas was granted permission to establish an experimental colony in northern Venezuela. But he was unable to find the necessary 50 settlers prepared to invest 200 ducats each. Ever the optimist, he went anyway. By the time Las Casas got there, the Venezuelans were at war with the local Spaniards, and he had to flee. At times, I'm sure Charles'd wish he could have done the same. Next time, we continue to follow these three men as Europe implodes. Francis and Henry meet in person for the first time, while Charles V confronts Martin Luther. As always, there's a lot more content on the website. Link in the show notes. And check out a free trial on Western Civ 2.0 if you want to. The link is down there. You can use it with just about any podcast app that you currently listen on. I'm just blown away at all the things that I skipped entirely or gave really short shrift to the first time I started out on this journey about eight years ago. I just finished recording an episode on the Minoans, and I didn't even talk about them the first time around. Anyway, there's a free trial there. Glow.fm forward slash Western Civ. Check it out.